Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity Today, and we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is by having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step, and you can get started today by visiting morect.com slash will. That's more than just one O, ct.com slash will. And for a limited time, you can get 10% off. That's morect.com slash will. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by Kinship United, a nonprofit organization rescuing orphans and widows around the world from trafficking, slavery, and death for the past 19 years. To learn more about how you can rescue an orphan or widow, visit kinshipunited.org today. It's Wednesday, February 13th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Craig Springer joins us to talk about doing evangelism in the 21st century. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm here with my co-host and our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Good morning. Good morning, Mark. So let's talk about our guest and who is joining us today, Mark. Joining us is Craig Springer. He's the executive director of Alpha USA. For the listeners who aren't aware of it, Alpha is one of the most effective evangelism programs in the world today, not just in the U.S. It, it has been used by more than 35,000 churches worldwide. Some 26 million people have gone through it. So we think uh, Craig would be a good person to help us think about how evangelism is done effectively in our world today. Hi, Craig. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. It's awesome to have you here. Where are you calling us from? I live in Denver. Ah, okay. I have a son. Well, the most important thing I have in Denver is two grandchildren, but I also have a son and a daughter-in-law there as well. So, it's a it's a great place to live. What's your favorite thing about living in Denver? The mountains and the sunshine. We don't like to tell people that there's over 300 days of sunshine a year in Denver because then too many people move here. But there you have it. Yeah, it's always a fine line between like boasting about where you live and then realizing that like it's just going to become not as great of a place to live if actually yeah, people know that. It's after many decades in Chicago, so I, I'm still in the honeymoon phase of Denver sunshine. Yeah, no wonder you're like, oh my gosh, mountains. How did I ever live without them? I take exactly. it you don't have a long commute in Denver because my, my memory of the downside of Denver is the traffic on the freeways. No, I'm good. I'm close by. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. And I'm going to get into the story that ended up with you getting on the show. Last week, we here at Christianity Today published a piece with this headline. Half of millennial Christians say it's wrong to evangelize. So our write-up was from a report from Barna Group that looked at the perspectives of millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, and elders who are all practicing Christians 
when it comes to sharing their faith. So just a little note, Barna defines practicing Christians as churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives. So according to this report that they did, they found that more than 90% of practicing Christians of all generations agreed somewhat or strongly that part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus and that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. So there was a very, very broad consensus on these issues. Millennials, however, were more likely than any other age group to say that they were gifted at sharing their faith with other people. In fact, 73% did, compared to 56% of elders, who were the least secure about that ability that they had. So most controversially, at least according to the informal Twitter audience who reacted with the piece that we did, 47% of millennials said it was wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. So I personally think that there's a lot to unpack here beyond the kind of knee-jerk reaction that so often we see with these things. And so this week on Quick to Listen, we'll get into millennial perspectives on evangelism and what it looks like to introduce people to Christ in 2019. All right, Mark, time for a gut check. What are your thoughts about this? Well, I don't think I was particularly surprised by it. I was a little, of course, discouraged or disappointed with it because I do think it's not only a duty and obligation, but it is something, it's a means by which we love other people, is to share the good news of the gospel with them. So the fact that so many think this is inappropriate, that's a little bit of troubling. Although I can understand some of the reasons, I can certainly understand some of the reasons for it. Sometimes people think the word evangelism is the same thing as the word proselytize, which means somehow foisting your faith on other people, or jabbering on and on verbally while they're listening patiently until you're done. That's what evangelism is. I think we all reject it. I think Jesus would reject it. <laughs> so we need to get into the nuances, why they said it, under what context they think it's inappropriate, before we can really understand what's going on. That's the problem with polls. They tell you a surface stat, but they don't really help you get down into the nitty-gritty of what it's like to actually face, have a face-to-face conversation with someone of another faith. And that's what we do at Quick to Listen. We try to get down there. You know, one other thing that comes up with polls a lot that pollsters are constantly trying to configure is they think a lot about the wording of these statements that they're asking people. You know, usually it's what a five point scale, right? Strongly disagree, somewhat disagree, neutral, right? Is there usually a neutral one? I don't know. Yeah, you know polls better than I do. All right. Well, now I'm embarrassing myself about maybe not knowing polls as well as I think I do. Um, Somewhat agree and strongly agree, right? And so you're trying to construct sentences that allow that five-point scale to be like actually a good way to kind of interpret that. And so this particular declaration that they asked people here, specifically around like sharing one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And so my gut reaction to this, just based on kind of how there was really broad consensus on evangelism in these other places, is if millennials in some way got kind of like tripped up about the word hopes, you know, and about if there was any potentially, I have no idea, right? I don't, I can't like go back and know what the people who are answering this actually felt. But maybe they feel like, you know, I'm supposed to share my faith because this is something that like God calls me to, you know. But with the hope of them sharing their faith, I don't know. You know, that's not up for me to do. I that see. is just one yeah, way yeah. of looking at it right. again, against right. all these other answers that, uh-huh. that seem very pro. Exactly. That's what's surprising about the combination of answers. Exactly. They don't seem to fit. Exactly. And it it seems too reductive just to think that, like, millennials hate. <laughs> Especially when they think they're gifted at it. 
exactly. Really gifted. Yeah. All right, Craig, give us your gut check. Yeah, I'm, it's hard to not feel heartbroken to see that fact. You know, we know that our faith is theoretically one generation away from extinction if we're not passing along the passion for Jesus, but also the capacity to share faith to friends and neighbors. And so I am heartbroken to see the millennial view of sharing faith is wrong is at 47%. It's essentially up 100% over Gen X and boomers. And so we have to ask the question, what's changed? You know, either what's changed for millennial Christians compared to Gen X and boomer Christians, or what's changed in our cultural environment that we have not prepared millennial Christians for, or we've not handed down a methodology of evangelism that matches the cultural change. And one, one other stat that kind of catches me, uh, if someone disagrees with you, it means that they're judging you. So disagreement equates to judgment. 40% of millennials believe that disagreement feels like judgment. Again, that's 100% up from Gen Xers and boomers. And so millennials are now facing uh, an extremism perception in the culture that if you even just disagree with my belief system, you've now crossed over into the judgment category. So I, I would like to go more towards how can we equip, how can we understand, have a cross-generational conversation with millennials so they can be effective at sharing their faith because they're passionate to do so versus how can we shame and blame millennials for not carrying that torch, so to speak. I also wonder if the, if the one phrase there is that's important is people of someone of a different faith. I wonder if that's the hinge on which the question turns, and, and the the assumption is that it's a, if a person has another faith, they're Muslim, they're faithful Muslim, or faithful Jew, faithful Jewish, we really don't have a right or an obligation to share our faith with them because God is going to deal them with them differently than He deals with us. So I, again, we'd need to have another set of questions, another survey to find out if that's what's going on. I suspect that's part of it because I do know the the belief in uh, in universalism, the fact that everyone is going to be saved someday, is is higher than it's been in the Christian church for some time. So that could be playing a role in it too. All right. Well, I want to kind of just talk about the different generations here. I know some people that I work with, I don't know, Mark, are you one of those people who just like love sweeping declarations about generations? <laughs> so some of us I are very fond of those. Yes. And some of us aren't. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do kind of, you know, want to provide maybe more nuanced um, generalizations about these different groups that are polled or these different generations that are polled. Craig, what do we need to know about different generations and evangelism? It connects to how non-Christians are finding or perceiving a sense of spiritual fulfillment. One of the interesting points that we made, um, we, we commissioned the study together with Barna from the data, is there's a there's a secularizing of the sacred, where people are are reporting increasingly from elder boomer Gen X to millennials finding a sense of spirituality in things like music, meditation the concept of mindfulness, again, of, of 100% increase over these generations. So there's a sense that where people historically were had a God-shaped hole are now finding and filling that or, or perceptibly filling that through more secular means. They're not seeing the church or the Christian faith as the answer for that internal spiritual longing, but there's a conversational appropriateness to spirituality in our world, but 
not attributed to the Christian faith anymore. And so that that changes the cultural dynamic among some of the generations. Well, it would be from the other end, from the presenting end. It is a remarkable difference in, I can only speak uh, the, the long term, the difference between boomers and today. I mean, when I was a young man, I did I did learn the Campus Crusade for Christ method of sharing the four spiritual laws. Refresh I, us. <laughs> Or teach. Uh, well, there's a couple of ways they did it. Uh, we went on the beach once and we did, we asked people on the beach to a- answer questions for a survey, a religious survey. And then at the end of that survey, we asked them if they wanted to hear more about the Christian faith. And that, that would be the point at which we shared with them the four spiritual laws. The first law being uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And then it moves through the plan of salvation in four steps. There were other methods that were very similar in in tone and approach, evangelism explosion. These were very popular programs in evangelical churches back in the day because they gave you a real concrete, not only a program, but a method and a an, an actual script through which you would oh, walk someone through. Uh, the, the famous evangelism explosion question is, uh, if you were to die tonight, would you be confident you'd go to heaven? That was the, the linchpin of that conversation that you'd have with a person. And I will be the first to admit, I, I mean, I did that dutifully as a young man, thinking that was the way it was done. But I will, I, I distinctly remember at the time feeling deep, deeply uncomfortable with doing it. I, I assumed it had something to do with my cowardice as a Christian, which it probably did. But in light of Alpha and other methods like it or other programs like it, in retrospect, one can see that it was these, these earlier methods that the boomers uh, were fond of and were trained in were really not very relational. And at the heart of the Christian faith is is the relational. And if you're not doing evangelism in a way that's relational, no wonder it felt awkward. But I, uh, on the other hand, there were a lot of people who came to faith through it. So I don't want to denigrate it completely, but it is a difference between 60s and 70s and today. Craig, what did you grow up learning about how to do evangelism? Yeah, I think the primary mode of evangelism I experienced and that we've seen maybe in the last two three decades has been what I'll just summarize as proclamation evangelism, whether it's on a Sunday where the goal is get as many non-Christians into a, an auditorium and proclaim the truth and then do a hand-raised moment or some sort of turn in a card. And then our evangelism training efforts, which I was very active in as a pastor, was training people to one-on-one proclaim the truth, share the truth. If we see a gap in theology or in a a doctrine, let's proclaim the right truth to that. But I think what we're seeing is this shift from proclamation-only effectiveness into a conversation type of evangelism. And we could talk more about that. But some of the things that pulled out in the data here is the perceptions of non-Christians of what would help them consider faith. They say, you know, some of the least effective ways have been person on the street, track, or even a concert venue, or even a person at church. And some of the highest levels of effectiveness would be casual one-on-one conversations and casual group conversations. And so in in a sense, we've, we've told people what we believe, but culture is increasingly shifting to finding what they believe on Google or Wikipedia or WebMD. And the inflamed kind of isolationism of people sticking together within their own belief circles of our cultural day and age has deteriorated the power of conversation. And that's something that we built Alpha upon is what does it look like to listen? The two least effective ways that non-Christians report increase their consideration of faith are, number one, someone who's good at debating topics. 
hmm. and someone who can share with clear explanation their own faith. The highest correlating factors to opening someone to consider faith are number one, someone listening without judgment, and number two, someone who's willing to not force me to draw a conclusion. And so there's this sense that the culture is saying, listen to me, understand me, let's talk about this. Don't just talk at me. Don't get me to understand you. And it will open up hearts and minds to faith. Well, you know, when Mark was talking about these four spiritual laws or, you know, Craig, you're talking about people doing, I don't know what to call them, like large group evangelistic calls to the gospel. Were those methods used because they were a reflection of their culture and kind of understandings of faith at the time about how best to do truth? Or were those done because those were seen as most effective to meet that culture where it was at? Were these practices in response to how culture was or they were in response to how Christian culture was? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. You want to jump in? (laughs) You're a coward, Craig. (laughs) No, um, I would have to say the two methods in particular, evangelism explosion and the four spiritual laws, were created by very dynamic men who led, one led Campus Crusade, one was a famous uh, pastor in Florida. I suspect that it was driven by a combination of what they thought would be the best way to present the faith to the people they knew uh, and that they encountered in a way that they found effective themselves, and they shaped it according to increasing conversations they had with non-Christians. So it was a combination of their notion of what's the simplest and most basic way I can sum up the Christian faith to someone else so they can come to a decision point. And they didn't mean that just theoretically. They actually tried out various methods and various questions and various points and found that in the end they, they solidified it into a certain method because they found that with most of the people they were working with in their little world, subculture, uh, suburban Florida. Now, Campus Crusade was more uh, national than that in terms of its ability, but I suspect it worked best with middle class people who had some religious understanding or had some religion in their in their background. I don't think they specifically thought like we think today. What's the culture like? What's the best way to reach okay. that culture? I don't think that was a question that occurred to us. To us, it was the people I ran with. It was what is the truth. What's the best way of getting the truth into the hearts and minds of other people so they can come to a decision? Really, it was getting to that decision point. Yeah, I think the truth is, is that God was using and still is using the method of sort of proclamation evangelism. I mean, you know, we saw many decades of, of enormous spiritual fruit through crusades. And I think in some ways, churches have sort of taken a crusade model and are living it out, you know, weekend after weekend. And God is using it. You know, people have been coming. but the possible shift is that the general moral value system, the general acceptability of attending church, the general majority of America consider themselves a, a Christian-based nation. And I think we can all see the data that shows that that's, that's shifting dramatically and quickly. You know, Barna reports that 59% of millennials today who grew up in the church will end up leaving by age 30. You know, it's no longer an assumption that every one of your neighbors and friends attend the church and adhere to that moral or value system. And so the acceptability of even attending a church is in decline. I think the some of the findings in this Barna study with Alpha collaborated on was that Christianity and sharing faith 
used to be considered maybe in just a decade ago as somewhat irrelevant where you, you know people who weren't of that faith could ignore it now it's experienced but 60% of american adults say that sharing faith is a form of extremism so now it's not just irrelevant now it's something that we need to according to popular culture push against legislate against stand up against because it actually appeared to be harmful there's a decline in even the reputation of christianity in the United States, in popular culture. And so our approach of sort of taking a big stage and just proclaiming is landing on the ears of a culture that's saying, hey, whoa, 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 we don't agree. We have a lot more questions. We're finding other outlets. And who are you even to tell me? And and all of that inflammatory response is increasing. And so we have to adjust to create more credibility and more friendship and more permission to talk about faith. Yeah, I, I saw that transition starting to take place when I was at university, because obviously in that context, the context, I went, I went to UC Santa Cruz, which is very anti-establishment, anti, pretty much anti-everything, uh, certainly anti-Christian. And we, uh, I think us in the college group there knew instinctively, immediately, that nothing like the methods we were using were, were going to work. So our, more, our most common method was to buy wine and refreshments and announce that there would be a gathering of couple Christians, anybody who had questions or criticisms with the Christian faith, you were welcome to come and we'd have a conversation. And that seemed to work a lot more effectively than anything else. So you were a trendsetter in the alcohol? In the alcohol, <laughs> yes, exactly. Come to faith right, <laughs> movement. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we had one evening in which the two leaders uh, imbibed in way too much alcohol <laughs> and it ended up throwing up in the hallway, which wasn't a very good effective witness for Christ. But at least they could see we were real people. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, good to know that that trend goes back much longer than what people may be aware of. So, Craig, I actually kind of want to hear a little bit of the story of Alpha and kind of how its philosophy arose. Yeah, I'd love to share that. Alpha started about 30 years ago in central London. And at the time, it, it shaped in an Anglican, you know, Church of England, sort of a setting where it seemed like the Church of England was dying. You know, no, no one was paying attention to the authority of Scripture. You know, people were avoiding attending church and not listening to essentially truth proclaimed. And so they sort of put it on, on its head and said, let's have a group, not, not dissimilar from what you just described, Mark, maybe a little less wine, but it was still kind of open. Just, hey, come, we're going to throw a great meal. And we'll have a short talk to share some of the basic elements of the Christian faith. But then we're going to have a, a, a wide open conversation where it's for you as a non-Christian to share your thoughts, your point of view, your questions. And we sort of trained the, the, the leaders not to answer questions, not to correct misinformed thinking or theology, but allow this process over time, it was over a 10-week course, to take shape. And, and what we found was People loved feeling heard before they were essentially being corrected or preached at. And it, and it created this sense of, wow, I really do belong before I have to believe or change my behavior. So it, it created this sense of community. And then over time, through that process of listening, the walls went down. The questions went from the head, then to the heart, then to really where the, the hurts lied. I mean, you, you know how many times someone will ask a question how could a good God allow such pain and suffering? And if we jump in with a, a quick answer or a quick sermon, we're going to miss the mark. Because when you say, oh, tell me more about that. Where's that question coming from for you? When we lead with listening, 
then they'll then they'll get to that place where they say, oh, well, there's my brother, you know, when I was seven or my mom or my friend. And you get down to that place of hurt and only listening can allow that. So Alpha is really built on on these two key shifts. One is um, moving from proclamation to conversation, which I shared. We're going to share the truth. It's not like we're not sharing the gospel, but the group discussion time, the Christians are actually coached to be quiet to ask questions, to facilitate conversation, let the process of exploration take shape. And it it sort of depends on believing Ecclesiastes 3.11, which says that the Lord has put eternity in the hearts of everyone. We can draw out sort of the threads that God's woven into people by listening and conversation and show them, oh, wow, that was interesting what you just shared there. Did you see that? And they begin to put the pieces together with God's spirit. And the other piece is um, moving from explanation to experience. So on the sort of alpha course journey, we're getting people to a place where, where we can invite them to pray for the very first time. You know, we just say, Hey, maybe you've never tried this. Maybe you don't even believe this, but if God is real, he might show up for you. Why don't you just try and pray a prayer? Just say, you know, come, come Lord, come Holy spirit, open my heart up to you. And, you know, countless times we see people over and over and over again. It's like my, my friend, Jason, who's a police officer in Colorado. He, walked through massive tragedies with people, that there's no God who could allow this. He said, I had this concrete wall shaped around my heart. And he went through Alpha four weeks and said, don't any of you tell me there's a God, because I, I know there's no good God that would allow this stuff. And we just said, Jason, I know you don't believe this, but would you just try praying and see what happens? And because he belonged to this group, he just said, okay, whatever, God, if you're real, show <laughs> up. And literally, and three minutes later, he's weeping, just saying, I feel like there's concrete cracking off my heart. I feel love, peace like I've never known. And I don't know why, but I love Jesus. And I want to get baptized with my family. And he did. And then, you know, he turned around. He's now leading in one of our alpha groups. And so there's this openness when we can move into conversation and draw people into the experience of God, not just the doctrine or theology about God. And so we've just been sort of coaching churches for these decades on how to do this, you, you heard, you know, in just the U.S., we have over 6,500 churches running Alpha as sort of this this place for conversation, and it's really transforming the church's ability to reach their community. All methods of evangelism back in the day were not just uh, as I described them, because there were a variety of people doing a variety of things. And one of the, I remember one speaker talking about how she would tell people that didn't believe in God to just uh, pray every day for 30 days as if there is a God. And she found it uh, remarkable the number of times God broke into that person's life. So it's a very similar idea that uh, Alpha's grabbed onto here. Yeah, I mean, one of the data points says from non-Christians, I would be more interested in learning about Christianity if, and one of the top points was, I had an eye-opening spiritual experience myself. And I think many times we try to get people to understand faith, which is important. People, People need some understanding. But we, we, at the same time, have got to be introducing people to that experience of faith. We're very much in a post-truth society now where, you know, what's true for you is true for you and that's good for you. But if we can introduce people to an experience, actually, of God's presence for themselves as part of their faith exploration, they'll be much more open, even while they're uncertain about whether or not there's a universal truth that they should adhere to. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, 
a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So let me ask you a, a question to follow up in that. How do you help people discern an experience they're having as coming from God? Uh, that would be part A. And then B, how do you continue to interact with people who say, oh, I've done that and nothing, I have, nothing has changed, nothing is different, I've had no experience? I think people need time. That's why you know, Alpha is a 10-week course. So it's not a kind of once and done, show up, get a jolt, and hopefully it, it lasts. It's, again, it's, just, it's this process of I'm getting to know you in a group context. I'm listening to you. They're, they're hearing talks about the basics of Christian faith. They're seeing other people in their group begin to open up. Um, and so they're, they're sort of, there's enough space for trial and error and then a community to get some feedback from. Like, is that real? Is that God? Is that not? And there's group hosts that can help give feedback on that. I mean, ultimately, they're, they're actually being equipped to explore faith in a, within a Christian community context. And so they're embedded in a local church already. And so the, the church is shaping what, what are the prayers that we're leading people through. Um, so there is, it is a safe container for this to happen. That's very helpful. Yeah. I think the community context is huge now that you mentioned it. Yeah. It's very different from, if you think of a, you know, like one-on-one only evangelism where you get a single person's almost like a, a dismembered arm from the body of Christ sort of out there kind of waving around trying to grab people in. But if you have a whole body attached to one another in community, you're drawing people into that whole body. And that's another one of the exciting pieces that we found with Alpha is there's huge retention. In fact, we found that those who complete an Alpha course, 79% report a significant increase in participation in that church. And so they're, they're, discovering Christ in relationship to a local church body. Uh, and, and so they'll, they'll jump in and stick with it and hopefully be discipled from that point. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Libromania, a podcast for book lovers from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Through conversations with contemporary novelists, poets, and biographers, as well as collectors, designers, and others, Libromania is for the person who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. I recently spoke with David Kern from Libromania. So, David, I assume you're one of these people who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. Why do you believe that books are so important for the good life? You know, to glorify God as a way to support our various vocations as Christians. If you're a Christian, you're pursuing truth, goodness, and beauty, and going to naturally gravitate in some way towards the arts. The words themselves become an important part of that. 
there's something deeply spiritual about words and so i think that books and the form itself you know all the artistic elements of book creation and, and reading can kind of get in our bones and and sort of help incarnate you know some of the the spiritual life for more information go to closereadspods.com or subscribe on itunes spotify or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts Craig, what do you know about the background of the people who end up going to Alpha? Uh, another thing that really stuck out to me about this approach is that you are inviting people in, but it's not necessarily, you know, g- going back to Mark's example of ambushing people on the beach with um, right. some sort of four spiritual laws um, question. So are these people friends of people who go there? Are they people who grew up in the church? Do you have people of different faiths who come in? The answer is yes to all of that. But, I mean, you have to understand Alpha's running in over 100 countries in, you know, tribal Africa, indigenous India, boardrooms of Hong Kong, prisons in Nebraska, and, you know, suburban megachurches in Oklahoma and California. So it's, 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 in some cases, it depends on who's that church reaching, who, what community they're based in. Of course, the number one reason someone comes to Alpha is by invitation. Um, I think it's like one in five come other than invitation. But we did a global study of Alpha groups. And so we have about a million three, a million four people every single year globally going through Alpha. Statistically, 16% of those are true atheist, agnostic, have no faith background or a hostile faith background. 30% are what we would call lapsed Christians who might culturally relate to Christianity but are not living it out or embracing it as a personal faith. And so that's 46%. So about half are either completely lapsed or have have no faith at all. And then the other half or 54% would be Church attenders, I mean, and we all know in churches, you know, some people are at very different places. So we see a dramatic increase in spiritual vitality of people going through Alpha from that point. But it really does depend on who's the church reaching. We're trying to just give the church a tool, in addition to their amazing weekend services and outreach efforts, where people can go with questions and where the Christians in that church feel predictably confident that if I can just get my friend to an alpha, they're going to have a great experience. They're not going to be forced into something. They'll probably even still be my friend at the end, and they'll feel welcomed by the church, and and hopefully they'll cross the line of faith. We found with our Barna Impact Study that 82% of those in that 16% category that have absolutely no faith background report having a relationship with Jesus by the end of the course. So there's just this predictability of, you know, the the experience is high quality, it's welcoming, and people cross the line of faith, you know, over and over again. If they'll walk this process, uh, this listening base, this relationship-centered conversation group over the course of time. I want to go back to what we were talking about with millennials and um, their views on evangelism. I'm curious how you see Alpha as being something that can also potentially change their minds about what evangelism is. and then. What other things that you think do need to be done to kind of shift their convictions about that? Millennial Christians who report, 47% of them think that sharing faith is wrong, also believe in mass that the best thing that could ever happen is for someone to come to know Jesus. So it is that paradox of like, I want my friends to know Jesus, but sharing faith with them is wrong. 
it might be more so that the methodology we trained and we've passed on is more like a cassette tape when what they need is a Spotify playlist of evangelism, so to speak, where they know that if, if I really share my faith with this friend, it's going to turn into rejection. It's going to turn into judgment. It's going to turn into extremism. Um, it's not going to work. I don't know how to do it. And so a tool like Alpha, where we tell people, wait a minute, you don't personally have to correct all of their thinking. There is a film that will uh, help teach some things. They're going to go on their own journey. They're going to get on Wikipedia and Google and do all their own searches as well. The most important thing for you in the Alpha course is to, is to create a space for listening, build a friendship, and pray like mad that God will show up in their life. Um, and at the appropriate time when that belonging exists and the credibility is restored and the friendship is there, you know, you can gently bring your truth to bear, bring your testimony to bear. But it equips millennials, it equips people who don't feel like evangelists, who feel like they need to be extrovert, extroverts or experts. It equips them to say, wait, evangelism could be as easy as inviting a friend to dinner. Well, I can do that. And I want to do that a lot. And they'll still encounter the gospel. They'll still hear about substitutionary atonement. And I can be a part of that journey with them while that I'm in. So it takes some of those barriers out by saying, create that space for conversation. For the people who are leading the group, I assume that they are part of the local congregation and so forth. For the people who are already active Christians and a part of this Alpha ministry, go over again kind of the instructions that you give to them and the ways that they're supposed to interact with all the people that are part of this course. Yeah, so... Break down sort of an, an alpha evening real quickly. We, there's food and amazing meals. So there's group, there's volunteers that provide hospitality. There is a talk right now. We, most of our churches are using a film series, very high quality, almost like a Netflix quality, 25 minute film going over the basics of faith. And then there's this group discussion. Those hosts who are leading group discussions, their job is to essentially be the host of a great dinner party as if it were in their dining room, where they want to make sure that the conversation is flowing, that nobody gets sort of slam dunked, that nobody overtakes the conversation too much. They're not the experts. They're not the master teachers. In fact, they even tell the group that I'm not here to answer your questions. I'm here to generate great conversation among our table. They'll redirect if there are Christians in the group who are, you know, smashing Bibles and recommending books to everyone every third point. They'll say, hey, you know, this this is a place for everyone to share their thoughts. And 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 someone will say, you know, I don't I don't believe Jesus. This is all made up. This is a myth. The host would say something like that is a really interesting point. Tell me what are some other of you think or, or how did you come to form that opinion? They're generating a conversation. And so the, the upfront talks do the proclaiming the Christian relationship space does the listening and the belonging. And over time, that creates that openness to saying yes. That method works in churches that are traditionally more theologically focused, like Calvinist and Reformed churches, as well as Catholic churches, which have a set doctrine about, great thick doctrine about what they believe about stuff, because I've seen it in Catholic churches now. So you've seen it work in those settings as well then? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're running in mostly every major denomination. It's interesting you say that about the Catholic Church. Um, we had over 100,000 Catholics or people in a Catholic context go through Alpha this last year. I mean, if you if you go through the 
sessions of alpha it's it's really the very basics all we're trying to do is introduce someone to who the person of jesus is what is faith how and why should i read the bible how and why should i pray um why should i participate in a local church and so anything that gets further than who's the person of jesus what's the cross all about what's the resurrection what's forgiveness you know we do leave that up to the local church to then take people on a discipleship journey that allows Alpha to work in all these different contexts. You know, every major denomination has reviewed the content and said, yeah, thumbs up. Was that always part of Alpha's mission to be able to collaborate with a a broad variety of Christian traditions and backgrounds? Yes and no. I mean, Alpha started as just a program in an Anglican church in central London, never to become this, you know, global effort. And so many non Christians started coming that all the church leaders locally in the UK started asking and then coming to trainings to learn how to do it. And it just happened to be that those church leaders were from every background. And so it caught us off guard. And I mean, this predated me, but we just said, something's happening here where the historical divisions are being erased around this very simple gospel introduction. Let's 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 start talking more about that. Let's bring together leaders from different cities, from different backgrounds. And so now, I mean, we've truly embraced that as a as a real premier calling of ours is to facilitate unity as part of this among churches, because we're praying for awakening and unity precedes awakening, according to John 17 said, you know, I pray that they may be one as the father and I are one so that the world may know. There's another point in this study about uh, lapsed Christians, who are the largest segment reported. So essentially they're saying, I I culturally grew up Christian or attended, but I don't really live this out now. So that the number one consideration that would allow them to be more interested in Christianity is if they saw various churches in their community working together more. And this reputation of division goes dramatically against Jesus's explanation of how we see awakening and revival in our days. This is some of the beauty that we experience when churches come together, maybe citywide around something like Alpha. You know, we have Pentecostal churches, Baptist churches, Catholic churches, Anglican, you know, you name it. And they're all saying, hey, we're introducing the person of Jesus in a relationship with Jesus together for this city. It opens up this new momentum for willingness to consider faith from, from people in friendship with those Christians, because they're seeing more unity displayed. Craig, I think it would be just really great if you could share maybe two or three stories of how you've seen this ministry work up close. The story about your friend earlier was fantastic, but I know that that's something that always resonates a lot with our listeners, is to kind of hear these um, narratives of people's personal transformation by going through the program. Yeah, I just had a friend's name is Matt, was in I mean, so I lead the ministry, but of course I'm involved locally too in in my church. Matt showed up to Alpha, successful business guy, built six businesses, very intellectually argumentative. I mean, you you name the questions and over the time they came up and we we continued that. Well, Matt, that is so thoughtful. You know, what are some of the other things? Or Matt, tell us more about where that comes from. It came out that he was on a vacation with his wife in Thailand in the, I think it was 2004, the tsunami that hit. And without going into too much detail, was by fluke a survivor 
hmm. floating in the ocean for uh, I think ten hours before he's saved, and I mean all the graphic destruction and death that you can imagine around him. And he prayed that sort of Hail Mary prayer. He's like, God, if you're real and you save me and get me out of this, I will, you know, give my life to you. And his wife were saved from that. And he did not give his life to God. And he ended up kind of walking through some traumatic so business things, had both of his knees replaced from some accidents all this time. So finally he showed up at Alpha and he basically told us, he's like, this is me finally making good on that <laughs> prayer that I prayed, you know, and whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I can't get away from this. And again, thoughtful, successful guy. And the questions and changed from those intellectual to more heart level. Well, my life feels totally empty and I have all this money. And what am I supposed to do to change that? And those questions shift. And ultimately, again, we, we take them on this prayer weekend with sort of an immersion time in the middle of the course. And shared, uh, based on Revelation 3.20, and we share, you know, Jesus stands at the door, knock, whoever opens the door and open and allows him in, I'll come in and feast. And Matt, I just said, Matt, do you want to try? I mean, you've sort of held that door closed to Jesus for so long. Is this your time to finally open it up? And he said, okay, I'm ready. And we prayed and he said, Jesus, come in. And, and he started crying. And within two minutes, he said, I feel like this new chamber in my lungs just opened up. I can breathe for the very first time. Like I've never been able to breathe before. And it's just this phenomenal journey of so much questions, so much hostility, but there's longing buried beneath the veneer. And if we can give enough time, enough belonging, and enough sort of prayer openness, God's going to draw that longing out and, and bring it to him. You know, I had a young woman named Sydney who showed up at first week. Yeah, she basically says, I'm here because I need to know why the bleep all this stuff happened in my life. Why would a God allow this to me? I, I'll never believe in him. And, you know, again, four weeks later, now this time she went home on her own and just said, okay, prayer's real. I'm going to try. She poured her heart out to Jesus, came back and spent the next five weeks trying to convince the others who were atheists in our group why Jesus was real and met her personally and, and if they'd only kind of listened to her life. <laughs> and you're like, wait, wait, wait. That's not the philosophy <laughs> of the program. Yeah. And that actually opened my eyes. It's very interesting. Not many Christians get to see salvation or non-Christians happening right in front of their eyes in a group setting. Usually it's a private prayer or a one-on-one -on -one, uh, or sort of in mass. But when you get to in a group context, it almost becomes like dominoes falling. I, I can't think of a better analogy now, but one person says yes, and then everyone says, oh, my goodness, wait, if that happened to her, because I heard what she said last week, and that just changed. And so there's a beauty of seeing it in a group setting that impacts everybody else there. It impacts the Christians to get more fired up, to build friendships outside of the church, invite more people to the next group. It impacts the non-Christians to want to consider it for themselves and not feel manipulated. So it's exciting to be a part of. Well, cool. Thank you so much for sharing all about Alpha and walking us through some of these other stats that you did with Barna. Yeah, thank you. All right. If anyone has feedback about this podcast, you can share that with us. You can go to Twitter. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. You can also send us an email. We're at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. All right. As everyone knows, the show is made possible by everyone who supports the ministry of Christianity Today. And we really appreciate everyone who does that. Mark, 
I know we're constantly talking about just how rich and layered your work is, how it involves international travel at times, or sometimes domestic travel, or sometimes just editing and writing and doing all that type of stuff too. What have you been working on lately? I was invited to a uh, ecumenical gathering who we will be going in August to Poland to study the Holocaust together. So that will be an opportunity to think more deeply about, no doubt, the deepest tragedy in human history. And as Christians, most of us will be Christians on this, there'll be a few Jewish people leading us through it, but we'll have an opportunity to think more deeply about our responsibility in that whole affair. And I think it's really important, even though most of the people on that, most of the Christians on that would be definitely left of center to far left in terms of our theological understandings. I just think it's really important for Christianity to be there to signal our solidarity with them, no matter the fact that we believe a lot of things differently, but also to share and try to understand our corporate responsibility toward the Jewish people. So it's, thing, it's doing things like that are, that are a tremendous privilege, and it's made possible because of uh, you know people donating and people subscribing, that we're able to have that kind of presence in the world. Oh, very cool. All right, so if you'd like to support the Ministry of Christianity today, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts. It's morect.com slash podcasts. Thank you, everyone who supports the show this way. We truly appreciate it. Now it's time for our Precious Moments segment, where we get to hear something that has brought everyone joy in the past week. Mark, it's up to you again. Well, it has more to do with travels. This time it was my daughter, son-in-law, and two grandchildren. They spent two weeks in the Philippines recently. They adopted a boy from the Philippines, and so they, they want to be able to take him back there every so often to meet with the, the orphanage and the children he grew up with to experience his home country, as well he should. But of course, it's always a glad and happy reunion when they return. So they returned late one night last week, and their time schedules were all screwed up. So they even, even though it was at 10 o'clock at night, I, was, I went over there and was just happy to see them all. And my grandson, who is from the Philippines, just ran into the house and ran into my lap. So that was just a nice precious moment. Yeah. Is he doing pretty well these days? He's doing very well. He uh, has many uh, disabilities he's trying to overcome, uh, but between the loving care of his his parents and the professionals in the West Chicago area, he's uh, he's making leaps and bounds. So he's such a delight. He, he's so interesting in that he's still trying to learn English and certainly doesn't read, but he's the most dutiful Anglican I've ever met. And say when he comes into the service after his children's time, and we're reading through the liturgy for the, the Eucharist. He always wants to know what page we're on in the bulletin. He insists on being on the right page. And he tries to say things with us, uh, even though he doesn't know what's going on. But sometimes we get the word Jesus or amen. He'll say Jesus or amen. So <laughs> he's going to make a splendid Anglican when he grows up. <laughs> All right. Where can people find you outside of this? I published something called the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. It's a weekly newsletter in which I link to articles and comment on them. Cool. Craig? Yeah, I had an incredible evangelism experience this week, which somewhat goes against all the things I just shared, because, you know, God can work in any way. But because um, I'm in amazing Denver, I got to go skiing with a bunch of friends this last weekend. And one of the ski lodge ladies was helping us out Um one of my friends was getting ready in the morning before getting to ski lodge and in prayer felt like the Lord just told him the name Kim had no idea what to think about this. And when we got to the ski lodge, the person who was helping us get ready 
His name was, her name was Kim. And so he kind of internally freaked out, felt like God said, you're supposed to pray for this woman and invited, just said, this is going to sound strange. I, in prayer this morning, I just heard your name, Kim, and I, I feel like I'm just supposed to pray for you for something. Is there anything I can pray for? And so we gathered around her and prayed, and she was going through a lot of tough times and was very emotional around it. And um, came back at the end of the day, and she asked for prayer again. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to end up sharing the exact same thing, because I just saw there was this, you know, the, the fruit was ripe, so to speak, in her heart and in her mind. And that same sort of Revelation 3.20 just said, hey, Jesus says we open the door to our hearts to him and trust that he you know, died and rose again. He could be yours. You know, let him in and let him lead your life. Do you want that? Are you ready for that? And I mean, without a two-second hesitation, she, with tears, just said, yes, I want that. I need that. And so we got to pray for her right there in the ski lodge in front of everybody in their ski boots and everything. It was very awkward and incredibly meaningful. Um, and I don't get to experience that sort of thing very often, but I just thank God for breaking in mm-hmm. for Kim, and it was so fun to be a part of it. It means I need to do a lot more ski outings. Exactly. <laughs> that is the best way to interpret that story, Craig. I'm glad you figured it out. All right. Where can people find you or Alpha outside of this podcast? Yeah, go to alphausa.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, would love. You can check out. We have sort of a map of the country where different Alpha courses running. You can find out more about how to run a course yourself. We do a conference every year. We do trainings all around the country. So, yeah, please just come to alfiosa.org, and we'd love to see you. And readers should make note of his forthcoming book, How to Follow Jesus, which will be out when, do you think? Yeah, January 2020 was on event. The real kind of opening guide for new Christians or returning Christians on the basics of living out our faith in a practical way. Very cool. So... I, I also have some sort of evangelism-related story to share, though it's not as complete as your story, Craig. I was at a birthday party on Saturday night, and one of the guys who was there, who was not the birthday boy, but someone else there, came up to me and was like, oh, remind me that I want to talk to you later about Christianity. I was like, okay. <laughs> I, I've, I've This guy who came up to me is someone I've like talked to one time when I was in a meeting with him, but that was about eight months ago. So I didn't even remember that he knew I had anything to do with Christianity. And then when we were at the bar later, he came over to me and talked about his complicated relationship with Christianity. And it was a little bit of a challenging conversation in that it was by that point a little bit later on in the evening and his girlfriend was not feeling well and wanted to go home. And I didn't want to keep them that long, but he had questions and had things that he'd been wrestling with and he wanted to talk about and wanted to look for a church that he could express everything that you're talking about right here in Craig um, and be able to ask all those questions and to wrestle with this, which is something that he hadn't felt like he'd gotten a chance to experience at the other places that he'd visited. So I don't know what's going to happen because I didn't want to keep, you know, we could have easily talked for an hour and a half and I felt like... I was going to be sacrificing his girlfriend's health if we continue to do that. But, <laughs> you know, it's just that tension, right, of like you you have someone who's so excited, but also not the best way to show her maybe a Christian witness either. Yeah, I, we exchanged numbers at the end and I asked him if we could get lunch to continue talking about all of this type of stuff. Or in this case, maybe listening to a lot of what he's thinking through and wrestling with. But That's it was, exciting. Yeah, it, it was exciting. And it just it's been interesting to me at various times in my faith when people will come up to me and be like, oh, I really want to talk to you about this. 
And then you can be there to, I would say, be ready to ask questions, you know, and if people want to kind of get some of those answers, that's great. But I really like this model of just being a really good listener, um, especially since there's just so many thoughts that people have um, that they're often giving you at that time. People can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right. I have a brief announcement, another announcement at the end of the show. Um, and that is about a new segment that we will be starting in a couple weeks. Essentially, we are going to be trying to share more stories about all the wonderful things that the church is up to around the world. You've listened to some of the podcasts that we've had a chance to showcase that um, really boldly. And we really would like to include all of our listeners in this part of sharing this good news. So you'll continue to hear from our guests and us about the ways that we're seeing this happen. But, you know, to everyone who listens to the show, we know that we have many international listeners. We have many people that live all around the United States, and we want to give you a sense to share what you're seeing in your corner of the world. So if you are an American listener, um, you can call this number. I'm going to repeat the number a couple times. It's 630-384-7333. And you can leave us a voicemail. Or if you are not able to call that number, you can leave a one to two minute voice memo for us and email it to us at podcast at christianitytoday.com. And in your voice memo or your voicemail, share us that story of how you are seeing, you know, the church act in a way that really seems to represent the love of God and... Or to um, put it like we put it at the end of a lot of our interviews with, end with, where do you see God working in this country, in your church, in your situation? Yeah. Absolutely. And and the more specific and personal, the better. I think that really is kind of the benefit of having people all over the place who are listening to the show. So we're going to pick some of these different recordings to play on future episodes of the show. So please also include your name and where you're calling from, as that's really important information for us as we go ahead and share this. So that's something that we're really excited about, and we will be launching in the next couple weeks. So the number again is 630-384-7333. You can also email us your voice memo at podcast at christianitytoday.com. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the, another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. The music is by Sweeps. Another announcement that I said at the beginning of the show is that we now have transcripts of our conversation and you can access all of those in our back episodes page, which is at christianitytoday.com slash ct slash podcast slash quick to listen. Thank you everyone who supports the show. Again, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts. And this podcast is available everywhere you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We will see you all next week. We are more connected now than ever before, but most of us still struggle with feelings of loneliness and isolation. Charlotte Donlin believes loneliness loses some of its power when we talk about it. So every week on her new podcast, Hope for the Lonely, she examines a different angle of loneliness. She explores how loneliness intersects with the Christian faith and how we might hold on to hope in the face of isolation. You can find Hope for the Lonely on iTunes and learn more at charlottedonlin.com.